like you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4, please. Now, uh, I know Seth has been reading the whole section, uh, whatever we're preaching on, and so I'm going to do what he does, but it's, uh, I don't want to apologize, it's long, but, but it's worth hearing afresh what, uh, what we're looking at here in terms of the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, so let me first open in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of God. I, I feel, Lord, like in America today, we take this for granted when other generations were deprived of it to, in having access to it in their own language. I thank you for what we're going to see in how you sovereignly work in the heart and the life of a great tyrant. And I pray that you would help us to find great assurance and confidence in this life because of what has been recorded for our edification. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There is... uh, There's a book that John Piper wrote a few years ago on the life of um, William Tyndale. And I know you've probably heard his name a number of times. Um, The King of England and the Roman Church had united in enforcing a monopoly over the Christian faith. And what they had done was focused upon the absence or the, the restrictions of allowing the people out there to hear the Word of God. And so in 1408, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote these words. In the, this was an official meeting, and this became the order of the day. This became law across Europe. It is a dangerous thing to translate the text of Holy Scripture out of one tongue into another. We therefore decree and ordain that no man hereafter by his own authority translate any text of Scripture into English or any other tongue. And that no man can read any such book in part or in whole. Together, they agreed that going forward from that day, that anybody who did either of those things would die at the stake. And so what began as a result of the passage of that law from the Bishop of Canterbury with the approval of the King of England, they began to kill many, many believers. There was, Daniel stood up to a great tyrant, and Tyndale himself believed otherwise. And so though persecutions broke out, and actually some of of the close friends of Tyndale were also put to death at the, at the stake. Both Daniel and, and uh, Tyndale knew these two things, that God's word endures, it will come to pass, 
and that tyrants do not. And so we're going to look here very quickly at, um, at what happened when Tyndale, like Daniel, stood up to a great tyrant and told the truth of God's word. It was, it's not tyrants that we need to fear, people. It is not tyrants. For tyrants are under the authority of Almighty God, and he can change them when he decides to. It is our own fearful hearts that are the problem. We must not be afraid of any opposition, anything that places itself against God's word and God's revealed will. And so I think of Tyndale who stood up and put his life on the line. He spent several years in exile translating the Old Testament Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into an English version of the Bible. That's what he did. And so, um, though he labored, he was eventually uh, turned over by a friend and was arrested and spent about a year in impossible situation in London, nearly freezing to death. And then on an October day, he was taken out. They tied him to the stake. They choked him to death and then burned his fire. He was never buried. Burned his body in the fire. And so what was recorded before he died and before they strangled him, he screamed out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And when he shouted those words, little did he know how God was going to answer. God in his own time eventually answered that so that that prayer was answered where there ended up being English Bibles in almost every home of England. Do you know that approximately 90% of Tyndale's translation work ended up in the King James Bible? And I think we all, most of us, probably in those who went to church, you carried a King James years ago. But that was the beginning. God lit a fire of the spread of his word through translation work that is not showing any signs of slowing up today. All of us who owned a King James Bible, even if we carry the ESV, we have a great debt to Tyndale because he stood up to a tyrant. I think of not just the ESV, but uh, this next slide. Uh, I spent a summer as a college student with, the, with some of these guys, and that was a translator sitting there with his face towards the camera talking to an Indian chief. And he labored for years to translate the trio language into the Bible. I flew 250 miles to get there. I stayed there with them for a little over five weeks living in, among the Indian tribesmen. And it was a delightful time to be there because I also have witnessed with my own eyes the impact of the Word of God coming to people who otherwise would have remained in ignorance of the gospel and of the message of Jesus Christ. This next picture shows us 
We printed Bibles right out there in the jungle vis-a-vis an old mimeograph machine and a, a, uh, a generator, and we had a celebration and passed out these Bibles to the Indians. And it was, it, to this day, I assume they are still teaching from this Bible. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, whether you're Tyndale or you're Daniel, you don't ever want to give up with impossible situations. You always want to stand for what you know God has decreed. I'd like to ask if you would, if you would rise to your feet. I'm going to read the first half of this as we stand out of respect, and then I'll read. Then you may be seated, and I'll, I'll read the second half. In Daniel chapter 4, we read these words. This is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, the nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the decree. Now listen to the testimony as Nebuchadnezzar speaks in the first person about what God taught him. (laughs) I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, look at that. He gets all the best of the best in his kingdom. He said, they came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known its interpretation. Obviously, he turns to Daniel. By the way, I'd have fired those guys. Okay? At last, Daniel came in before me, who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, so he tells the dream to Daniel. This time he doesn't have to guess it. He he doesn't have to have a revelation to hear what the dream was. Now he tells it to, to Daniel. You, the chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the middle of the earth and the height was the great, was great. The tree grew, it became strong, its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. And it was food for all the beasts of all the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens, they lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. (laughs) Wow. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher. Footnote, watcher there is an Aramaic word for a guard. It is a powerful guard who shows up. So I, I saw this watcher, a holy one, coming down out of heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it, and let the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field, and let him, look at that, switches. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. To this dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, Belshazzar, Tell me its interpretation, because all the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Please be seated. So that is his summary in this epistle, if you will, that he is sending out. Now look at Daniel's response. And please appreciate the dynamic of what must have been going on here. You're standing in the presence of a man who had a hot temper and who ruled over the greatest empire in the history of the world, and you've got to say some things. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was, he's reading the body language. He was dismayed for a while. He's speechless. His thoughts alarmed him. Now look at the king. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation of the dream alarm you, which I think he's saying, please just tell me the truth. Because I, I, I can sense that Neb knew that this wasn't a good report he was hearing. But he said, he said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies, says Daniel. The tree you saw, which became, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth. See how he's recounting back the, the vision to Daniel, I'm sorry, to Neb. He says that those leaves were beautiful, fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. Do you hear that? Now it got down and personal to Nebuchadnezzar. 
It's you. You have grown strong. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has uh, your, your greatness has grown and it reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a guard, a holy one, coming down from heaven, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, for seven periods of time pass over him, that's seven years. This is the interpretation. Okay, it is a decree of the Most High. Swallow hard. Which has come upon my Lord the King, that you will be driven from among men, your dwelling will be with the beast of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, which means you're going to be not camping in a tent. There will be seven periods of time which shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the 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 roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed to you from the time that you know, that you know heaven rules. Therefore, application of Daniel. O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that there may be perhaps, perhaps, Possibly a lengthening of your prosperity. A commentator says, by the time you get to, to the end of chapter 3, remember we started with 4.1, you, you see that already Nebuchadnezzar has learned that only that, that he has learned that only the God of Israel can give you him the proper interpretation. He knows that. But here's what he does not understand. That he has not yet learned that God doesn't just rule over people. That God rules over Nebuchadnezzar. And he cannot possibly escape this great God over whom he has attempted to rule as if he were God, that God will not relinquish his throne to any human ruler. Now, it was five decades before Babylon had come in and taken Jerusalem, five decades before, 50 years or so before this, there was a guy by the name of of Habakkuk who formally protested to God. He looked around, he said, my country's falling apart. There's no justice in in the courts. He says, the wicked rule. He said, we can't even worship God in the temple. 
And so he's protesting, God, why don't you do something? And Habakkuk waits for his answer like this. And God answers. Remember, this is 50 years before Nebuchadnezzar comes. Look among the nations, says Yahweh to Habakkuk, and wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, hear this, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is why I have titled this sermon, God's Dictator. There is no force, no power, no human thing that can be created on this planet that is over God himself. And so God makes that clear, and he says, and I'll give you a history lesson. Here's my description of their personality. They're bitter, they're hasty, he says. They march through the earth. He says they're dreaded and fearsome. He says they come for violence. The reason they're going to come to Jerusalem is to create violence. He says they gather captives like sand. They laugh at kings, but listen to this. God says, guilty men whose own might is their God. Do you hear that? In other words... Habakkuk hears, you're raising them up and they, are, they see their military and their power as God. They are gods. That's what they're thinking. There's, um, there's a com- commentator who just said, this, his strength is his God. As unbelievable as it may seem, this instrument of the Almighty for judgment on the people now exalts itself to the level of deity. This insight into the Babylonian self-image provides a framework for understanding why they were so brutal on Israel and the other nations. They thought they could exercise whatever brute force they wanted because they were gods themselves. You get the picture. Tyndale commentary (laughs) says, human pride is the world's greatest dangers. The basic biblical teaching is always needed, but perhaps never more so than in an age of politicians, advertisers, job seekers, business owners, ministers proclaim and market their importance in every way possible. As technology has, has progressed from writing print to print to telegraph to radio to television to worldwide web, self-interested voices have grown louder. Thus, it is always, self-promotion is always useful to see an example such as we see in Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4 provides that example. And so here we go, brothers and sisters. Human pride always leads to a plurality 
of sinful behaviors and attitudes. But before we point the finger at Nebuchadnezzar, we need to be careful to look within our own hearts, even as the redeemed. So what was, how did this pride, how did Nebuchadnezzar show this pride? Several ways. Nebuchadnezzar had been malevolent. By that I mean he had been wicked. He was a pretty bad dude. And what he had done, if we could look at his resume, it's already recorded his resume. It says in 2 Kings 25, 5-7, it says, When the Chaldeans took Jerusalem, the king of Jerusalem fled all the way to Jericho. They followed him, caught the guy, captured the king's sons, butchered them in front of his eyes, and then gouged his eyes out, put him in chains, and led him back to Babylon. The last thing he ever saw was his children being butchered. That's why I say he's malevolent. And he didn't stop there. He goes in and burns the house of the Lord. Now, this had great significance. And he burned, of course, the houses of Jerusalem. So he had been malevolent. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar thought too much of himself and too little of the Almighty God. He was at the top of his game. Nobody now was getting in his way. Remember, he thinks he's God because he can do anything. His Marduk, his God of war, was with him and he could not fail. Daniel 1-2, you probably don't remember, but when we first started this series that Seth began, the Lord gave to Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave him into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And with some of the vessels of the house of God, he brought them to the land of Shinar, and the Nebuchadnezzar laid the vessels he took from the temple the Holy of Holies, he laid them in the house of his God. Now, do you know why he did that? He did that because transferring treasure in the Middle East at that time into the house of your God was a way of saying, I won, my God is stronger than Yahweh, I am in charge, here you go. And he lays it before his gods. That was a not just a political, it was a moral and an angry statement back against God. All right, so you get the, you get the picture. Neb is not the guy you want living in your neighborhood. And so here's what's going to happen. God is slow, but he's never late. And we, we would like him to do everything we want yesterday, but God has a patient plan that he pursues. And so the vision that we just read that was prophesied, seven years of brokenness, do you notice the change of tone? <laughs> Again, Verses 1 through 3 of Daniel chapter 4, if your Bible is open, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. What? The guy who went to war is saying, peace be multiplied. It sounds like 
It, it, it sounds like a Pauline epistle, does it not? Peace to you, Paul says. He says, it has seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, what's he talking about? Not what was in chapter 3. He's talking about what he's experienced in those seven years of brokenness. And so, God takes a man by the scruff of the neck who thinks he's got godlike aspects about him, and he says, I'm going to deal with you. To put it bluntly, God's tyrant is taken to the woodshed. He who thought he was unreachable and exalted has been brought very low. My brothers and sisters, regardless of what we are hearing in the news and what we're seeing in our world, even this weekend, this whole thing about the balloon and all that stuff and what's the implication, listen, nobody is above God. And everyone is a heartbeat from him. And so we see here, as God takes this man to the woodshed, and he doesn't do it in a one-week period. He doesn't go to some revival meeting and get wonderfully converted. He drives him away from his own kingdom and his own people because he's been changed into an animal. So here's the takeaway. One, God says at the woodshed, you are powerful, Nebuchadnezzar, but not for the reasons you think The trap of power is pride, and he's saying, it's Yahweh, it is not you. You're not where you are because of you. You're where you are because I put you there. That doesn't excuse you of your sins. What it says is, you still are under my thumb. Daniel 4.23, we already read it, where he talks about the watcher coming down from heaven. The significance of that is he knows that somebody's above him, and he's scared. Secondly, God says you cannot escape from Yahweh's control. (laughs) Daniel 4, 4 through 6. Do you notice he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my, fa- in my palace, and I saw a dream as I lay in bed. Every person in this room, every leader in the world, past, present, or future, you know the one thing we all require? Many things, but one for sure. Sleep. And uh, we build great fortresses and we crawl into bed and we turn on security systems, if you will. We do everything to be safe. And God says, I'm going to get you right where you sleep. And so God encroaches upon his place of escape and scares the life out of him. So God is, he knows he can't run. And so there's a third thing at the woodshed that God teaches him. Not only can you not escape from me, he says you're about to lose control over your own life. Yeah. Now that's what I'm talking about. What he's saying is, he says 
In Daniel 4.24, he says, here's the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar's face. O king, it is a decree from the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you, you, it's not somebody else, it's not the kingdom, it's not impersonal or somebody out there, you shall be driven from men. Brothers and sisters, that reminds me of hell itself. That so often you hear, we're going to go to hell and have a rock and roll party. That's, nothing could be further from the truth. Hell is banishment and loneliness and suffering. And so God drove him out into, the, into this wilderness area. But he also points out this much. He says, at the end of this threatening description, do you notice what happens? He, see, he, he holds out an offer, Daniel does, to terms of peace. <laughs> Did you notice that? And so he says... In essence, you need to repent specifically and particularly. And in a clear, cogent fashion, he lays out where a human being needs to repent. And in his case, it was Daniel. Remember, pride is now being snatched out of his chest. So don't think, and please don't think of this as a Middle Eastern negotiating thing where God is saying, you know, well, if you'll just turn around, you know, if you'll check a few boxes, I'll change the administration of the government. I'll do some nicer things to people that I'm oppressing. I, you know, I'll, I'll clean up my act, deal with a little corruption, whatever. So what are you talking about? He says to Daniel, there's going to have to be some deep repentance. I, I'm, I'm sorry, to Nebuchadnezzar. So he's saying, don't just check off the boxes. We'll do anything, even as Christians, to keep from biblically repenting. Because in the end, repentance is not checking boxes off or changing surface behaviors. It is a change that comes out of total, complete helplessness and brokenness in our guilt. And so... When he says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Look at the things he says. Break off your sins. And that break off, I, I looked this up in the Aramaic, not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. It is the language of Babylon. He's saying, like a Band-Aid that you rip off a wound that is excruciating, rip off. No matter how painful, rip off, deal Deal in, a, in an aggressive way with your perversion. That's what he says. He goes on to say, as you rip that off of your soul, he's saying, practice righteousness. That's the fruit of a deep and real, true brokenness and repentance. And then he goes on to say, face your guilt and responsibility. You can't deflect. And then lastly, he says, show mercy to those who you have been oppressing. 
And he says, hey, if you do, God may grant further prosperity. But do you know what happened? He didn't. It was a year later, and Seth is going to preach about this next week. The second half of this story, how this happened one year later. Now, what's the point of all this? Why all this detail? I hope it gives you kind of a grasp of not just what we should, what should be our attitudes towards impossible situations, whether you, you are like Tyndale, that you pay for your obedience to God with your own life, or whether you're like Daniel, face-to-face with a guy who would throw you in the fire in a, in a heartbeat, that whoever you are, you know this, that God will do whatever he wants to do, and it doesn't matter how much screaming and jumping up and down the human race does in front of him. He will accomplish his purpose. What he intends is for you and I to not be afraid to stand and speak God's truth to people who need it. Amen? And um, I'd like to just finish with this. I do genuinely believe you and I, and I'm speaking to us as believers, you and I share more in common with Nebuchadnezzar than we do with Jesus Christ. Now here's why. Because you and I both know in our secret sins, in the things that that we all struggle with day in and day out, we know we're not there yet. We're not perfect. We have an alien righteousness, the free gift of forgiveness And of Christ's righteousness has been freely given to us, not because of anything we do or don't do. That's done. But we're not yet fully changed in terms of our sanctification. And so, that's why I say, you struggle with pride. I do. We could talk about where pride manifests itself. But hear me on this. God's not done with us yet because of Jesus. Amen? And so, I just want to finish, walk out, walk out of here with this one picture. In Romans chapter 8, we have one goal in life. Verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of of his who say it I have one goal in life and you have one goal in life and that is to become like Jesus and we will only become that as we cling by faith to him and we live out whatever God tells us to do there is a process that he's caring for